You know, Tony, we had such a great time talking about Paris and visiting Paris musically for our other show on Spotify called Before My Time. Um, that I thought maybe we could maybe stick around Paris for a little while and talk about not a really pleasant thing, but a very fascinating thing. What do you think? I think that is a great idea. And if you're talking about going back to Paris on July 3rd, 1971, I'm all in because that is a fascinating event, a little bit mysterious, maybe some conspiracies around that event. So yeah, I think we should. And then uh, we'll need our passports again this week because we're also going to the Philippines. So big time, the, big time uh, road trip. Customs doesn't think we're trying anything funny with all these passports. Oh my goodness. And I hope our, uh, our experience in the Philippines is a little bit better than the one that we're going to talk about tonight. So mm, I'm with you there. <laughs> Are you all set? I'm all set. Let's go. Let's go. Maps. Check. Snacks. Double check. Tunes. Check. I'm Tony Stewart. I'm Aaron Badgley. And we are cruising the rock and roll highway in our way back music machine. Are you ready, my friend? I sure am. I have the feeling this is going to be the start of a great adventure. Kind of a magical mystery tour. Somehow I knew you were going to say that. You know, back in my early podcasting days, uh, when I was a solo show, I did an episode on the 27 Club, and we're going to be talking about that. Uh, We have to go back to July 3rd, 1971, for one of the more notable members of the 27 Club. So uh, can you punch that in, Aaron? This is in Paris, right? You bet. Paris, July 3rd, 1971. There. We're good. Okay. Like to buy the world a home and furnish it with love. Grow apple trees and honeybees and snow white turtle doves. I like to teach the world to sing, sing with me. Man, what a classic commercial. So July 3rd, 1971, Paris, the body of the Doors frontman, Jim Morrison, was found at his hotel room at about six o'clock in the morning. And this is one of the more mysterious deaths in the uh, 27 Club, isn't it? It is, and I'm going to be full disclosure right now. I'm not the biggest Doors fan in the world, but I do find this story utterly fascinating because uh, because of the mystery around it, because of the unknown elements, you know, and um, uh, so yeah, it was a big time, and, and this was after Janis Joplin passed away at 27, right? Yeah. Jimi Hendrix. And it was and then, uh, two years after Brian Jones, right? I think it, wasn't it two years, 
to the day? Yeah, because uh, he was 69. Yeah, 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 yeah he, absolutely. He yeah. was July 3rd, yeah. 69, wasn't he? So, uh, yeah, this one's very mysterious. And I also am not a huge Doors fan, but I do find this incredibly interesting. So he went to Paris. Uh, he needed some time away. Uh, his struggles with alcohol were uh, pretty well documented, and he needed to just get away and uh, went to Paris and seemed to be doing okay. That was the weird part of all this. You know, people said he would be, he was seen walking around. Uh, he looked well. Uh, he had, you know, he'd go for long walks in Paris. He looked well. He had shaved the beard that he had grown. He had lost some weight because uh, he had packed on some weight. And uh, I always thought it was funny that you'd go to Paris to lose weight. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I think I, that would be the opposite for me, but uh, yeah, me as well. Yeah. <laughs> but you know, like he um, just very mysterious and uh, found dead in his bathtub in uh, in the hotel room. But there was no autopsy performed, and yet they 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 put the cause of death down as a heart attack or heart failure, I guess heart failure. But there was no autopsy performed, which is really. That's kind of unusual, is it not? Yeah, it is unusual. And uh, and the authorities said, well, it just wasn't necessary. But, you know, I don't know whether that's a France thing or not. But uh, that, of course, spawned all kinds of conspiracy theories right away, especially because it seemed like he was doing better. But uh, he was found at uh, six in the morning and they were unable to revive him. And he was dead on arrival and uh, buried in Paris, too, isn't he? My brother actually is one of those thousands of people who uh, went to the cemetery. I mean, on his 25th anniversary, right? There was how many fans there, you know? I mean, thousands, yeah. right? I think 15,000 or so, right? That went to that cemetery. Like, that is crazy. I mean, I, there are a lot of Doors fans out there, of course, but... But, you know, to add to the mystery is that he did talk seriously about faking his own death. As, and, and he said it was a publicity stunt. And, you know, he would joke to his friends that um, he'd, he'd do it and just go live in Africa or somewhere remote. And, you know, he used the name Mr. Mojo Ryzen, which was an anagram for Jim Morrison. Um, you know, so, I mean, I'm not saying he's alive. I'm not going to jump into that conspiracy. However, he has been spotted in Africa, um, Australia, American Midwest. But then Elvis was spotted where? Near you, wasn't he? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Elvis was living near me in Tweed for... I mean, it probably still is, according to some people, but uh, it's getting pretty yeah. long in the tooth if he's still there, you know. <laughs> uh, the other thing, right, his girlfriend, Pam Corson, uh, yeah. and and a friend, Alain Rone, uh, they were the only ones to see his body before it was buried. So it just adds to the mystery. Now, I, I've got a question, because we both huh. said we're not big Doors fan. Do you think, is his legacy inflated because of the death at 27 like like do you think yeah I, I have to if i was to be an honest person i'd say yeah you, you know that the doors put out two more albums without him right well that's right and they didn't do anything they were they're not even considered good i mean people don't even talk about those two albums as if they're their albums i think that um john lennon once wrote in 1974 everyone loves you when you're six foot in the ground i think that it adds to the the mystique that was Jim Morrison. I think commercially he was kind of past his prime in 71 and uh, he knew it. I mean, he wasn't stupid. He was a very bright man and the doors were not, they were, they were past their best before dates. So yeah, I hate to say it, but yeah, I do think so. And what do you think? He, well, I, th 
think so too. And I agree with you that they were past their prime by that point. He was, uh, I mean, his struggles for sure would have led to the demise of that band anyway, I think. Um, you know, the first ever rock star to get arrested on stage during a performance. Uh, that's that's something else. And uh, do you know? Do you remember where that was? Which uh, show that was? Was that in Florida? It may have been. It may have. I thought been. it was in Florida. Because he's originally from saw Florida. Him in Toronto. Oh, did he? Yeah, at uh, the uh, what's it called? Uh, Varsity Stadium. Oh wow! And then um, yeah, so being arrested on stage, you know, what like that's, uh, and then you know, being charged for various offenses just just because of his. Uh, alcohol addiction you know and uh, i think it would have would have spelled the end of the band anyway have you ever seen the movie the doors yes yes val i was gonna kilmer, ask right? about that yeah val kilmer played him and what'd you think of that i thought it was a good movie i thought it was look the story of the doors is utterly fascinating oh absolutely you know i mean the fact that he told people for years his dad was dead and also like no he's, <laughs> he's alive and well actually you know um, which makes me laugh all the time, right? But uh, yeah, he—he—it's a fascinating story, regardless of where you sit with the music. I mean, it's—it's it's, um, so it's a good movie. I thought Bill Kilmer did a very convincing job, quite frankly. Yeah, I did too. And Morrison wasn't really your typical musician; like he didn't play guitar or anything, right? He usually just stood there with a tambourine or some clavies <laughs> or something, right? But uh, he was a, a writer, a poet, and. Uh, Manzarek, uh, no, you know, noticed his poetry and said, hey, like, you, you know, we could be in a rock band here. So there's a really good album. Um, and again, not a big Doors fan, but there was an album called An American Prayer, which came out in 78 or 79, where they took recordings of him reading his poetry and the, the, the remaining members of the Doors created new music for the poetry. And it's actually very listenable. And he wasn't a, a horrible, horrible poet. I mean, some of his poetry was a bit too serious for my liking, a bit too, in my words, pretentious, but he wasn't, he, he wrote some good poetry. And some of it's very riveting, but some of it's kind of like, you know, not my taste, but you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. And well, I think that kind of late 60s stuff that was going on when rock got a little bit pretentious, that's probably my least favorite era, you know? Um, thankfully 1971 happened. <laughs> because that's probably the greatest year in rock and roll history. But uh, what was on the There's charts? A lot, a lot of good albums that year. Well, I, I actually looked at the singles chart for this for this uh, session uh, for our meeting today. And I, I, the, the top five singles makes me kind of smile because it is such a polar to uh, po the antithesis of The Doors. Oh, yeah. I mean, we still had some bubblegum happening. Number five was Hamilton, Joe Frank and Reynolds with Don't Pull Your Love. Yeah, I, I still love that song. I'm sorry. Uh, Carpenters are number four with the Paul Williams song, Rainy Days and Mondays. Always get me down. Here's one. I put, you probably haven't thought of the song in years, Tony. Cornelius Brothers and Sister Rose, Treat Her Like a Lady. Oh, my goodness. Um, yeah. Number two is the the Raiders. No longer Paul Revere, the Raiders, just the Raiders. But Indian Reservation, The Lament of the Cherokee Reservation. Quite a, uh, quite ahead of its time. Oh, really. for sure. I mean, maybe the language, but, you know, right? Oh, Absolutely. And, and and number one is your favorite. This is like Tony's number one. It's, it's too late, but I feel the earth move. Both songs tied at number one. Yeah, that's pretty amazing too. Yeah, I absolutely love It's Too Late. I think that is my favorite Carol King song. Well, I know. I know you love that song. That's why I thought this is Tony's number one. <laughs> you know, when we were talking about 71, um, 
what what an unbelievable situation in the studio when she was recording tapestry. I mean, she had the, she had the carpenters in one uh, studio next to her and uh, Joni Mitchell in the other. Uh, and I like what Joni Mitchell came up with, Blue, oh. uh, which, um, wow, it's, you had just rediscovered the album. Not rediscovered, but you were just kind of really enjoying it recently, right? Yeah, I listened to it again. I mean, and, uh, you know, perfect, right? 36 the case minutes. Of you. I love the case of you. Yes. Um, I just want to mention that In the Charts was a, a band that I was a big fan of at the time because I was, uh, I was all of six. Partridge Family. I'll beat you halfway. I still have the single, and uh, <laughs> I have all my fan club stuff. <laughs> well, what do you think? Uh, <laughs> no comment. <laughs> that's right. No, you know what? I do remember the Partridge Family barely, barely. That was uh, just because I'm uh, what I'm. I think I'm five years younger than you, so I, I, you know, distant memories of the Partridge Family. So here, I just before we go to the next. City, or I, I have to say, there's a connection between the Partridge family and Prince. Do you know what it is? Oh, no, I don't I have no idea. There was a member of Prince's band, uh, The Revolution, named Wendy Melvin. Her dad produced and wrote and played on all of the Partridge family songs. Oh, really? There you go. Well, six, Prince meets the Partridge family. Six degrees of separation, as they say. <laughs> <laughs> I think we should jump ahead to 1979. What do you think? Yeah, because this is this is more your stuff, right? This is this will be perfect for your age at the time, I think. Oh yeah, because I was a teenager at the time. Well, I was ten. Yeah. I was ten years old for this, but I mean, it really didn't take off until a few years later. That's right. That's right. But we should jump ahead, though. July second, 1979. Got it. Okay, here we go. Well, when I was saying that we needed our passports, I wasn't kidding because we are in Tokyo, Japan, and it is July 2nd, 1979. And this is a big one uh, in music history because the way we consume music changed on this day. And uh, Aaron, what happened on this day? Sony introduced the Walkman, the first portable audio cassette player. So for those of you old enough to remember you remember them those those nice little headphones that went around your your ears and um your head and they were they were the most sturdy things um but they were for the next 30 years they sold 385 million walkmans both for cassettes cd the very short-lived mini disc and digital file versions so there you go this is this is so for those of you who are young this is before streaming well that's right and this was a game changer you know and it was interesting because uh i bought a walkman and i bought a lot of cassettes uh because that was right around you know in the early 80s right i would have been just getting ready to go into high school but it changed the way that we listened to music You, you didn't have to have a speaker anymore and when the walkman was first introduced the press would have none of it they they thought this is who's going to want this there's no record feature on it right the the walkman was purely designed to consume music and not only to consume music but there's one other thing that you could do with cassettes right was that you could make your own playlists and mm. so it was a game changer i mean totally setting up for the way we listen to music later on and they sold just the cassette version of the walkman they sold about 200 million of those things it's uh, unbelievable and they weren't they weren't 
overly expensive, but they weren't cheap. 150 bucks in 1979 or 1981. That was a lot of money. I mean, I don't know how, I don't know what it would be in today's money, but it wasn't, it wasn't, um, I mean, today, 150 bucks is nothing, right? But I mean, I mean, it's something, don't get me wrong, but it's not like it was in 79, right? Well, no, absolutely. And I remember saving for quite a while before I could buy one. Well, and, and you're right. What did you say? It's like, because at this point on, for most of the 80s, cassettes started out selling vinyl. Yeah. Well, they started, what was it, 83, right? They overtook vinyl. Yeah. And it drove me nuts. I don't know if you remember this or not. For, for, for me, it was they would put extra songs on the cassettes that weren't on the vinyl. So <laughs> they'd be like, damn it, I have to buy the cassette. And then there were some bands in England when they launched, um, and I'm a big fan of a band called Heaven 17, and when they launched the Walkman a year later in England, it came with a cassette that was made for the Walkman by Heaven 17, which is now quite collectible. And yes, I have it. But it was only available on cassette. You couldn't buy it as an album. You couldn't buy it any other way other than a cassette when you bought a Walkman. Luckily, my wife, or my, my girlfriend at the time, not my wife, my girlfriend at the time, had a cousin in England who hated Heaven 17. And when he bought the uh, Walkman, he was going to throw it away. So she, he mailed it to me. Oh, very nice. <laughs> But uh, there were, you know, a few other legacies of uh, the Walkman as well. Exercise, the exercise craze, aerobics, that was all kicked off, all kicked off because of this ability to listen to your music without anybody else being involved, right? You just put your headphones on. Some of the Walkmans had two headphone jacks. You could listen with two people. But But you had to be very close together. Yes, yes. (laughs) Um, And then... Just, but the press w- was all over it at first about this. Well, you can't record on it. What what good is that? But they were missing the point. You know, it was just viewed as a new way to consume music. One of the frustrating things as a Walkman owner, though, was because you know how unreliable cassettes were. You remember that? Like always having to take the pencil and and wind them. Um, is I remember it very well. Yeah. It, you know, my favorite cassettes. I would have to buy a few times because they didn't last that long or if it got caught or something right all of a sudden you're you you had a good chance of your cassette being ruined and and you'd have to go buy it again so uh, or stretched don't forget the, the tape would stretch too right you get that little kind of a wowing sound in it do you remember that like i it, do it just I do. didn't sound quite right yeah so you know maybe it was a conspiracy right to make us buy more uh, records but you, what's interesting is that that many people think that cassettes were kind of a late 70s but Cassettes actually started in 63, and it wasn't by Sony. It was a Netherlands company called called Philips, which, you know, you might remember, you might have records on the Philips record label. I do, 10CC. Um, they created it used for, but get this, they were, they was created for secretaries and journalists, right? The cassette. And I think I have cassettes from 71 of, of um, some albums from that time, like Ram, Imagine, they don't sound that great these days, Tony. I'll be honest with you. But they improved the sound of cassettes, don't you think? Yeah, they well, they did. The cassettes, for sure, that came later were much, much better. But uh, they're, uh, you know, for me, the biggest issue was always you had to be so careful with them. But I loved, I loved the fact that you could make playlists on your own or make a mixtape, right? That's another legacy of the... <laughs> I have a question. Though. What was the first tape you ever purchased? Oh, my goodness. Probably Billy Joel, I would think, had to be one of Billy Joel's albums. And do you remember making your first mixtape? I do. Uh, 
you know, because a friend of mine, we were we used a friend of mine's record player and and a tape recorder, and it was tough to make a mixtape unless you had the right equipment, right? We would record yep. the record player on a tape recorder, and then put each of the songs so the sound would be degraded twice by the time it got to your walkman it was terrible but but it was empowering at the same time right did you ever tape off the radio uh yeah a few times did you yeah. oh yeah because they used to uh back in the old days before the internet they would actually advertise we're playing the brand new cheap trick song on thursday at five o'clock ten fifty chum you'd be ready with your tape recorder and want to get i want you to want me or whatever you know yeah now i remember also when the first discman came out uh mm-hmm. and how unreliable were th- uh, i had one of those one of the original sony discmans the first were they skipped all the time oh it's terrible you, like you couldn't yeah. you know you almost had to sit still and not breathe because uh if you even walked it would skip it was awful i'm going to embarrass myself right now i bought a discman um, when we bought our new car a couple of years ago, didn't come with a CD player, as cars do not come with CD players anymore. So I bought a disc player for my car that I plug into the lighter and the, the you know, the stereo system of the car, so I can listen to my CDs while I drive. Oh well, there you go. <laughs> but anyway, the invention of the Walkman and that uh, that was huge for Sony. Man, they made bundles and bundles of money. They from still that. do though. I mean, yeah. they're still around. I mean, they're, they're, they're different formats, but Sony is still coming out with, I mean, their competition is Apple, but they still, they're still kicking. Oh, absolutely. Now, speaking of Apple, there's a connection here. Uh, I'm doing the old Apple, Apple records, Beatles. Uh, uh, well, let's not go there. We got to, we got to, oh, I got to give you the top five. You the know, charts. This. Right. Sorry about that. Let's do the no, charts sorry, first. Yeah. Listen, I'll talk about the Beatles anytime. Uh, <laughs> Number five was Kenny Rogers. She believes in me. Mm-hmm. Number four was a song that I never knew was going to be a hit. Ricky Lee Jones, Chucky's in Love. I love that song. She was great. Ricky Lee Jones was great. But did you ever think she was going to have a, a top 10 single? Come on. No, I mean, it doesn't sound like that should be a hit, right? It's so Especially out when there. the next two. Right. You know, then you have Donna Summer, Hot Stuff. And then Donna Summer, Bad Girls, three and two. And number one, my personal favorite, I need a ward, <laughs> ring my bell. No, it's not my favorite. No, just exactly. It just goes to show you that uh, crappy music has always been around and somehow floats to the top once in a while. But I, yeah, ring my bell is like a throwaway piece of music in my opinion, but that's okay. Now you had a number, another one we were talking about though, that was pretty notable, right? Sitting around number 10. What was that? Yeah. I want you to want me by cheap trick recorded live in Japan. Yes. At Budokan Hall. Well, there you go. So Perfect. I thought connection. that was a good tie-in, isn't it? Uh, Budokan in Japan, Sony, Tokyo. Well, that's a great tie-in. Well done, sir. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> and since we're in Japan, we're going to hop over to the Philippines because that's the uh, quickest way to get there. And we're going to go to July 4th, 1966, and a very disastrous tour, trip, whatever you want to call it, to the Philippines by the Beatles, and actually a pretty scary one, too. We'll talk about that in a second, as soon as we get there. Are you ready to jump? I'm putting it in. All right, off to the Philippines we go. 1966 was... uh not a particularly good year for the Beatles. And we're right now in the Philippines uh, to witness something that just goes south too, too quickly on July 4th, 1966. So in 1966, the Beatles are playing Japan. They get 
protested outside the Budokan Hall where they're playing. They're the first band to play Budokan, which is a holy shrine, and people thought this is a wrong thing for the, the Beatles to play there. Although Cheap Check recorded a live album, very successful one. And then in America, meanwhile, they're, they're having Beatle burnings where they're, they're burning records and books because the John Lennon's were bigger than Christ comment, which was taken out of context, was also a very old comment. But the Americans were reacting. And then the Philippines happens, which is just a nightmare of epidemic proportions. Over to you, Tony. Well, yeah, <laughs> it is a disaster from the moment that they touch down. You know, right away, they realize that they are not going to be treated like uh, regular celebrities, like they're normally treated. And in fact, I think they just ushered them off the plane and forced them into a car, didn't they? And they they had to carry their own stuff. And... Uh, they had. They were really worried about uh, their their carry-on bags being searched, like their shaving bags and stuff, because they said. Uh, I remember seeing a quote, you know, that there was not shaving equipment in there. <laughs> was the thing you smoked? Oh, I, I think perhaps it was, but they were supposed to play two sets, um, and it was going to be at the Rizal Memorial Football Stadium in Manila, and eighty thousand fans. But supposedly it was way more than that. But Right from the get-go, wasn't it? From the initial press conference, it was just downhill, and it got worse and worse. And uh, what a what a first day! And then, to make matters worse, the president of the Philippines, President Marcos, decides that he is going to have the Beatles come for a children's birthday party and uh, have the Beatles meet all these kids uh, the next day and meet Imelda, of course, his wife. And he, they let uh, Epstein know at the hotel. And Epstein says, uh, no, that's not happening. <laughs> and he doesn't even tell the boys about it, does he? No, because they, they would have said no. Harrison said as much. He said, you know, we didn't know anything about it. But then, you know, they're watching TV the next day. Yes. And uh, they're watching themselves not showing up, aren't they? And kids crying and, and Melda there crying and everyone's crying because the Beatles let everyone down, right? Oh, boy. And and all of a sudden, right, the whole country just turned on them like they were public enemy number one and uh, frightened. Like they were truly frightened for their lives. Uh, you know, they, they were basically told, go home. And uh, I mean, they did the two sets and they, I guess they rushed through the two sets and... Uh, on the way back to the plane, surrounded by a mob, and um, security just didn't do much to enforce the mob. And well, because the government pulled back all support. Yeah. The government said, we're not going to protect you. Right. So, good luck, right? I mean, you're, you're right. There was more than 80,000 people in that stadium. They yeah. were lucky to escape with their lives. Yep. And, they were uh, lucky. You know, and Epstein got beat up on the way back and uh, ended up getting what, what happened he got punched in the head and kicked in the groin and he was quite sick yeah. after that eh? and then when they they're, they're sitting on the plane to take off the, the the officials come on the plane and say we're holding the plane and they pointed at two of their roadies Mal Levins and um, Neil Aspinall and said you two come with us and they reportedly Mal Levins turned to the Beatles said please say goodbye to my wife and tell her I love her because they thought they were going to be executed. But they had to turn over every single penny the Beatles made in, in the Philippines. Every penny. Yeah. And some of the money they made in Japan. <laughs> it was uh, it was viewed as a national slight by the Beatles on this country. And so the, the entire country was up in arms about it. 
because uh, of the way that Marcos was selling this thing. You know, the Beatles have slighted us and they're no better than us. And, and um, what a... It was, only, it was only when Marcos died that they started playing the Beatles on the Philippines radio again, you know? Oh, really? Yeah. But um, well, did, did he die or they, they ejected him? One or the other. But. <laughs> <laughs> but this really was the nail in the coffin in terms of the Beatles touring career, wasn't it? That was it. Between that and the burnings and the threats they were receiving from the KKK, <laughs> they really did receive threats from the KKK. Yeah. Um, that was it. So August 29th, my second birthday, 1966, they that was their last paid performance. They just gave up. That I was, don't blame them. I mean, it just got ugly, right? That was the candlestick performance in San Francisco, right? Yeah, my mom wouldn't take me. <laughs> <laughs> I asked, and I asked, I cried, but that nah, didn't get to go. Didn't get to go. But, but anyways, yeah. yeah, the Philippines, I mean, the, and if you watch some some uh, interviews at the time, they're, they're kind of funny and sad at the same time. The Beatles were really upset by how they were treated. And I think it was John Lennon or George Harrison who said, you know, we're going to treat you like ordinary passengers. And they're going, so you kick and surround and mob and throw things at ordinary. <laughs> well, I think they were afraid for their lives. It was uh, terrifying. Can only imagine. Once again, once again, the Beatles came out on the better side of history because they did not bow to Marcos, which no. is a good thing. Right? Well, that's right. That's right. Now, what would have been on the charts, though, uh, July 4th, 1966? Well, oddly enough, no one from the Philippines. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Number five was Dusty Springfield. You don't have to say you love me. I love Dusty Springfield. So do I. Uh, Do you? Yeah. Yeah, great voice. Four was the Rolling Stones, Painted Black. Like or hate? Oh, I like Painted Black. Yeah. Number three. The Circle with Red Rubber Ball. They were managed by Brian Epstein, and Red Rubber Ball was written by Paul Simon. Oh, cool. I did not yeah. know that. Number two was the, was uh, number one the week before called, um, I don't know if you've heard this one, Paperback Writer. I've not heard it. But, uh, <laughs> not today. It's <laughs> a good one. Good. <laughs> I, I, yeah, exactly. Not this hour. Um, and number one, your favorite, Frank Sinatra, Strangers in the Night, should be due. Yeah, you know what? The Beatles. That, that's, one of my least, that? uh, that's one of my least favorite Frank Sinatra songs, actually. Is it real? <laughs> it's not, not, not one of his best efforts, in my opinion, but that's, I don't know. <laughs> it's not very jazzy, that's for sure. Yeah. And the Beatles were at number 24 with Rain, which that's- was the B-side paperback writer. So there you go, Tony. That's uh, and, and just because I love the song, number 31, Sam the Sham. Oh. Uh, Pharaohs with Little Red Riding Hood. Oh, yeah. Love. Yep, I remember that song. I mean, I obviously, I wasn't born when it first came out, but I remember hearing it after, yep. I was two. Well, there you go. <laughs> well, that was uh, probably our most international road trip yet. That was really fun. Yeah, I'm a bit jet-lagged. How about you? Oh, I, I am too. And, uh, you know, uh, before we left, I had my second uh, COVID jab, so... I'm waiting for You're the, feeling okay though, right? I feel okay so far, but I'm sure when we get home, maybe the side effects will kick in. I'm certainly hoping not, but you never know. But felt good to get the second jab, so. Well, I've, I'm fully vaccinated now, and you are, so maybe we can actually do a show together in person as opposed to 700 miles separating us or whatever it is. <laughs> exactly. Well, <laughs> do you want to punch it in for our virtual present and we'll get back home? Here we go. All right. See you in 2021. Here we go. 
You know what the best part of these uh, international road trips is? Just in my opinion, anyway, uh, besides the music talk, of course, but is the food. I love uh, trying food in different places. Do you? Oh, I'm so with you right there. And um, Japan has some amazing food. I don't know much about the Philippines food because I was having rocks thrown at me because I had a Beatles shirt on. But um, <laughs> <laughs> just kidding. I'm just kidding. But yeah, I'm with you. I love the food. I love you like French food, right? Paris? Oh, uh, yeah, I do, actually. Hmm. What's not to like? Well, Butter, that's exactly. Cheese. Exactly. All the stuff that'll kill you early, but uh, is delicious. <laughs> so uh, we were talking earlier on this trip. You know, I know the subject of uh, Joni Mitchell had come out on our uh, Spotify radio show. We're going to do something that we don't normally do, aren't we? Something very unique. Very, very, very unique, but but really fun, too, at the same time. Yeah, we're going to actually talk about and play every track from Joni Mitchell's incredible album, Blue. And Blue is the 50th anniversary, for those who yep. don't know. But, uh, you know, I was watching an interview with Graham Nash, and um, because he had been with Joni for a while, and, of course, <laughs> you know... <laughs> she premiered a song uh, when they were still together that was about dumping him. So that's how he found out they were no longer an item, but uh, he still, still so much respect for her, you know? And um, he just says that the time that they had together was amazing, but, but in his opinion, and I kind of agree, he said two things in an interview that I saw that were notable was the first one was probably the greatest album ever by a singer-songwriter, period, you know. Um, and he said, Bob Dylan and Joni were equally good poets, but he said Joni was 10 times a musician and 10 times the singer that uh, Dylan was. And again, you know, when you listen to her sing, boy, I, like she would be so hard to cover, my goodness. You should try, though. I, oh, don't, yeah. see, I, don't, see, I don't see why you don't try one day. I mean, you know. Yeah, like she... Yeah, uh, you could do a good arrangement. Yeah, her her voice was incredible, just the range of it and, and the way her phrasing and her music takes uh, steps that you're not expecting at all, all the time. Uh, do you have a favorite track on Blue, by the way? It's of You. Oh, okay, that's a great one. Do I, you have a favorite? I do, California. I love that's that That's a good song. one, yeah. Yeah, that's a good And you know, those songs, I, like, they have not... Uh, fallen out of favor or they haven't they don't sound old is what i'm trying no. to say i was the first Joni mitchell album i ever bought oh it's an amazing i just listened to it again the other day and yeah it's, amazing it's a, it's a classic but you know i was thinking that that opening guitar lick in uh in california that sounds like it could have been written this week oh, for sure oh she was i mean look there's no there's no escaping her and we'll talk more about this on the spotify show there's no escaping her influence and and she was light years ahead of 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 just about everybody. I mean, she really was. She heard things that we didn't hear. Oh, and, and um, she was admired by everybody too. You know, like Hendrix was a huge Joni Mitchell fan. He yeah. loved her. Her guitar playing is so out there. And the, the, she supposedly, I don't know how true this is, 70, somebody cataloged it and she used like 75 or 74, 75 different tunings throughout her career on her guitars. She would retune her and she had to have a, a road person just to keep track of what tuning she was using for what song, but that's amazing. Amazing. Yeah. 
Yeah. Well, I, I think we talked about this before, maybe it was on our other show, but, you know, watching the, uh, the, uh, her concert at Isle of Wight and, and just watching her doing the tunings and then just, it just, it was beautiful, just incredible. And I mean, there's, what is there, 150,000 people there, 500,000 people, I don't know, big, huge crowd. And they're all quiet listening to her. No, you know, exactly. It's like, you, you got that kind of control because, because people want to hear what you're singing and saying. So, yeah, I'm, I'm, you know, Although I'm on team Dylan, just saying. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know what? We can discuss that when we record that episode. But uh, this he's was a big fan too. He's a huge fan. Oh yeah, and I, I'm a big Dylan guy too. I love Dylan. Yeah. Well, this was a fantastic road trip, Aaron, as always, and uh, we're coming to your place now. But uh, have a good week, my friend, and uh, I will talk to you soon. Say hi to everybody at your house. Stay well now that you've got your second uh, dose, and I hope that you don't have any adverse feelings. So take good care, okay? Oh, you too, and I'll, uh, I'll talk to you soon. Music for today's episode of the Wayback Music Machine podcast was written by Rick Denis. The show notes, chart selection, and Spotify playlist were created by Aaron Badgley. And the artwork, recording, editing, and sound production was done by Tony Stewart. If you enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to tell a friend or two. And don't forget to click follow or subscribe on your favorite podcast player to get the latest episodes automatically. And we'd love it if you would leave us a review. You can also engage with the show by going on our website and leaving us a voicemail. We may even play your voicemail on an upcoming episode. Thanks for taking this road trip with us, and we'll see you next time on the Wayback Music Machine Podcast. Hey! Turn the radio up. I love this song. The Wayback Music Machine podcast is a Stewie Tunes production. It's not just business, it's personal. And Signature Theatre's new musical, No Place to Go. When dedicated employee George discovers his company is relocating to Mars, he must decide whether to go and uproot his family's life or embark on an unknown venture. Featuring DC star Bobby Smith, No Place to Go is an irreverent and humorous musical with an enterprising twist. Now playing at Signature Theatre through October 16th. Get your tickets at sigtheater.org.